Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, why should we recognize genocide? What does acknowledgement and commemoration mean for genocide awareness and for justice? Doug Becker explores. Welcome to Scholar Circle. I'm Doug Becker. Commemoration and re- remembrance of genocide is an essential tool of statecraft and individual political action. Genocide Awareness Month is driven by a desire for commemoration with an eye towards ensuring that the dictum never again is more than just words. But the commemoration and acknowledgement of genocide carries a political risk. Memory contestation has a profound impact on these historical narratives and demonstrate what's at stake in this commemoration and maintenance of memory. On today's show, we will examine the role of commemoration of memory and of driving towards universal recognition of genocide as a political tool to counter future genocides. Our panel is Stephen D. Smith, who is the Andrew J. and Erna Finchie Viterbi Executive Director Chair of the USC Shoah Foundation in Los Angeles. He also holds the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Education. Doville Budrite, Professor of Political Science at Georgia Gwinnett College, she is co-editor of Memory and Trauma in International Politics. And Maria Armudian, senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Auckland. She's the author of The Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs and an Increasingly Perilous Future, The Big Lie About the Armenian Genocide, and of course my colleague and co-host, as well as founder of Scholar Circle. Thank you all for joining us. Stephen Smith, um, let's start with you. You are the director of the USC Shoah Foundation, kind of dedicated to memory and genocide education. Could you describe your work, kind of the mission of the foundation? Yeah, the, the foundation was established in 1994 by filmmaker Steven Spielberg to collect the testimonies of witnesses to the Holocaust, primarily survivors of the Holocaust, but also a range of other um, victims of uh, the Nazis, as well as witnesses such as liberators and uh, war crimes trials participants. Subsequently, in the last decade or so, we've expanded that collection to collect testimonies from genocides other than the Holocaust, uh, going back as far as the Armenian Genocide, we have around about 1,500 testimonies of the Armenian Genocide that were collected in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, as well as testimonies right up to the current day, including those of the Rohingya um, and from 19- 2017. So it's a collection layered onto that is academic program, schools programs, research programs, and of course, working with colleagues, universities and campuses around the world, about 200 partners that we have. And with the interest in genocide, I know it started seemingly focused on the Second World War European genocides, but this sort of branching and discussing genocides broadly, how much of the attention of the foundation really is on the Second World War uh, genocides and how much on some of these other uh, genocides throughout the 20th century? Well, from a volume perspective, we have nearly 53,000 testimonies that are from World War II. And of those, 51,500 are of survivors of the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust. Um, 
But so it's the vast majority of content is from uh, World War II and the specifically the genocide of the Jews during World War II. However, the other collections, while smaller, are given equal weight within our program and our research programs. So, you know, you would expect to see testimonies of the Armenian genocide or of Cambodia, of which we have a very small collection, um, being used in our education programs and research programs, if not as as often we give it the same primacy insofar as each testimony has equal weight um, within the work that we do. Yes, and, and the importance of this work, uh, Dovil Budrite, is that I know there have been campaigns to alter historical narratives, to emphasize certain aspects of genocidal campaigns versus others, to justify uh, genocidal campaigns. I know you've been doing work in the Baltic states on that question. How salient is that topic today? Is, are there still these attempts to try to alter the history of, of, of genocide in the region? I think it's a very pertinent question. And to uh, give an example, in Lithuania right now, there's a big debate about what to do with the upcoming commemoration of the so-called June Rebellion. Uh, which was a rebellion against uh, Soviet occupation, but it also coincided with the Nazi occupation with with the beginning of the Holocaust. So there's a big uh, question about this particular commemoration. At the same time, there's also a bit of a scandal over the publication of a book by Silvia Forti, the granddaughter of a Nazi, about uh, Generalis Vietra, Jonas Noreka, who was also an anti-Soviet uh, Lithuanian uh, fighter, but who was involved in creation of ghettos. So in Lithuania in particular, but also in many other countries in the region, we see this very problematic entanglement of histories of several traumas, and it's extremely difficult to, to deal with these memories. So it's not just as sometimes it's portrayed as simple revisionism or trying you know, to evade the past, but um, there are many historical questions involved, many that still remain to be addressed. And we'll delve into some of those policy questions and identity questions uh, as we go on. I want to bring Maria Marmudian in because speaking of sort of the first question, about genocides is, is as a recognition of the genocide, universal recognition, including the recognition by the perpetrator. You've just recently written a piece about the Armenian genocide and you know well researched in the area of the Turkish denial of, of the genocide. Um, tell us a little bit about the piece that you wrote and sort of about the state of, of the Armenian genocide and its recognition. So Doug, uh, one of the things that happened is after I started teaching at the University of Auckland and when I arrived here, I was sort of having been living in Los Angeles for years and kind of a real awareness about what happened uh, to the Armenians, the genocide that happened to the Armenians by the Ottoman Turks, the young Turk government. Um, And when I came here, there was so little awareness, I was shocked. And then I uh, stumbled across a discovery that there was a a couple of monuments to the man they call Ataturk, Mustafa Kemal, who was the architect of the denial campaign. So he was in the Turkish army, Ottoman army, during the Armenian genocide. But then he ethnically cleansed uh, what was Turkey and killed off the remaining Armenians that were there or uh, eliminated them in other ways so that he could have Turkey for the Turks. And so I was 
a bit shocked that a country like New Zealand that touts human rights um, first hadn't recognized the Armenian genocide, although it had recognized, of course, the Holocaust and the Cambodian genocide. And I believe Srebrenica, they also classify as a genocide and Rwanda, but not the Armenian one. And so when the Armenian community asked for recognition, they punted to Turkey, essentially saying, we leave that to the <laughs> to the two parties as if, you know, as if there was some equal weight there. And so I have also started looking at the issue of transgenerational trauma and how the, that trauma, especially when unrecognized, especially when denied, affects the offspring as well as the people, obviously, who have gone through the genocide and how when it's unanswered, it can intensify with each generation. And so it manifests itself in all of these uh, ways that seem inexplicable. So it could be, you know, a kind of low level anxiety all the time or panic attacks that you don't have explanation for, or kind of a low level anger that just comes out at the wrong times. And all of these things, uh, don't make sense to the person who experiences them until they dig deeper into the epigenetics of what the trauma has done and the inability to resolve it because of the denial, right? So one of the things that Turkey has done now is to argue that, oh, everybody, you know, it was a war, people got killed. And the record is so clear that this was a, a planned and meticulously executed genocide. So the piece I wrote, uh, I said, look, you know, my story is not that unusual from uh, other grandchildren of genocide survivors. My grandfather was about 10 and obviously he was not staging rebellion. This is what the Turks had said. Armenians were staging rebellion. They were killing Turks. Well, obviously my grandfather was not staging rebellion or trying to um, kill Turks because he was not even, he was barely 10 if 10. So the victims in his family included his entire mother's side of the family and eight of nine of his siblings who were all younger than him, clearly not staging rebellion, clearly not killing Turks. The other piece that I uh, emphasized uh, in this article was that they were integrated in a Turkish town and they were so valued and respected that when the young Turk government ordered the expulsion of the Armenians, they ignored it. They said, why? You know, these people are just part of our community. They're not part of some political campaign. They're not, they have, don't even have arms. There's none of that. But the young Turk government pressed them and they said, look, there's no reason. Young Turk government said, find a reason. They still ignored it and refused to expel the Armenians in their community. There were about 15 families. So the young Turk government sent soldiers and those soldiers were even not completely persuaded. They warned my family. They said, don't go to Derzor. That's where they were headed. Derzor is where about 150,000 Armenians were hacked and bludgeoned to death or burned to death or drowned to death um, or crucified. Um, they said, you should bribe your way into Raqqa and hide there. So they did. And they hid there and checked. They kept checking to see if they could go leave the barn where they were hiding by 
uh, counting bodies coming down the river, hundreds of bodies coming down every night. So the point of the article was the big lie is so obvious if you just look at the facts. These were children. These were, you know, the infirm. They had already killed all the men by conscripting them and then and then killing them. They had already killed the community leaders. And so it just pokes a hole in that big argument. And that the rest of the world does not say, oh yeah, you're right, God, that's obvious. Leaves Armenians to, uh, and others who have this, you know, have a genocide in their history to be left with all of this sort of identity related shame, identity related anxiety, it's gonna happen again and on and on and on. And I'll just be quiet now because I know I could keep talking about this. <laughs> Well, Doug, I'd like to respond a little bit to Maria there. You know, I um, remember 2004, we were wrapping a conference in Stockholm as part of a four-part series convened by the Prime Minister of, of Sweden called the Stockholm Forum. And the last one was on genocide prevention. And we just, I was involved in convening the conference. We were very pleased. There were 45 country delegations, a thousand people in this hall. The UN Secretary General at the time, Kofi Annan, made an announcement in the closing plenary that there would be a new position at the UN for a special advisor on genocide prevention. I have to say, I was leaving that hall highly elated after many months of work to try and make that happen. And I was the last person to leave the hall. As I walked out into the foyer of this giant conference center, there was a young woman waiting for me. She was in her mid twenties, I remember vividly, and she was standing right in front of me, tears pouring down her face. And I looked at her and said, what's the matter? And she said, well, what about me? And I said, but what about you? She said, my great grandfather was a survivor of the Armenian genocide. And while I'm happy that all these things are happening to recognize genocide, where does it leave me? And it was a profound, profound moment. And it speaks very much to what Maria was just talking about. And that denial has been so pervasive and corrosive. And I think we, what we see is the pattern of history is that denial is generally the last act of genocide. When the killing stops, the genocide is not over. And those that either perpetrated or apologize for the perpetrators or have their own identity politics weigh in um, to deny the victims their, the, the dignity of their memory um, and essentially continue to perpetrate the ideas of the perpetrators through the act of denial. And it's extremely dangerous and has lasted a hundred years for the Armenian community. You're listening to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing genocide commemoration, memory, remembrance, acknowledgement, and its implications. Speaking of denial and recognition, there is some speculation that President Biden might recognize the Armenian genocide. I know there's been some conversations about what that means you know, with respect to policies or any sort of, uh, you know, what, what, what that would mean. But just from a personal perspective, as well as your, you know, a political perspective, what would that mean? So first of all, yes, he's poised to do it tomorrow. He, you know, all of the leaks and the preparation have said that Joe Biden is going to officially acknowledge the Armenian genocide. And I would just want to say before I even respond to your uh, great question, is that President Biden has been so sort of transformational in so many ways 
that I think a lot of people have found unexpected. And um, the, it's sort of this combination of his long periods in politics, so knowing how politics works and how it's done. I think his own personal history with trauma, um, as well as probably his Irish background, um, to sort of be able to have some empathy on these issues, not quite a genocide, but enough of loss to really be able to relate. Plus, personal integrity. You know, he's been keeping his promises. How's that? So, I, you know, I, I know a lot of Armenians, one in particular who says, if it happens, I'll leap my hat. And I told him to get his salt and pepper shakers out because I'm expecting Joe Biden to come through. So what it means on a psychological level first is that we can start to heal. It's a bit of a salve. It's, a, it's not the apology that we need. I do think apology goes a long way. It's not any form of reparation because we lost all our family members. We lost our indigenous lands. We lost everything we had built for centuries in what had been uh, our home where we lived peacefully with all of our neighbors and thrived. And all of that was taken from us. And we had to start over, not just once because most Armenians ended up going to other countries that went to war. They ended up going to Lebanon or Cyprus or Syria and then had to flee again and start over once again. So it starts to at least offer the psychological salve so that we can move on from this, not forgetting. And then perhaps it starts to push Turkey towards an apology. If enough countries do, we're seeing what, what's happening with Russia right now and Joe Biden putting enough pressure on Russia that he's changing Putin is starting to change some of the things that he might not have done, might not have changed under a president like uh, Donald Trump. So it could lead to some policies. It could lead to some things, both for future genocidaire, but also for healing for Armenians, some kind of restoration, some kind of reparation that will repair the damage that we have been carrying on for, for you know, two generations now. Maria had introduced this concept of a transgenerational trauma. Doville Budrite, I know you've written about issues of trauma, this question of sort of transgenerational trauma, both from the personal perspective that Maria is giving, but certainly from a collective or community perspective as well. How important is international recognition of atrocities of genocide in helping communities wrestling with this transgenerational trauma? I definitely uh, relate to this concept of uh, transgenerational trauma. I mean, I think there's also a very useful term, a post-memory, also that basically asks the question after the survivors are dead. I think it's especially essential for the Armenian genocide, right? I mean, how do we continue with the memory? Then uh, memory uh, carriers definitely matter a lot. Recognition matters a lot, even though people who were directly engaged in genocide are already dead, right? Um, but I think um, international recognition, international actions are of huge importance. I can just uh, talk a little bit from the perspective um, of, of Lithuania. In the case of Lithuania, when, when Lithuania regained its independence in the early 90s, 
there was a lot of a struggle with uh, the recognition of the Holocaust. And uh, for the Lithuanian Jewish community, it was indeed a big deal. I feel that probably their uh, experiences were somewhat similar to those who had to suppress their memories, whose uh, victimhood was not acknowledged properly during the Soviet period. And um, that was a very brave step from the Lithuanian president, Brazauskas, uh, in the 90s to go and apologize for the Lithuanian complicity in the Holocaust. Uh, and that was a big deal. Inside of the country, for Lithuania, it was very painful. So I would imagine that also if we're thinking about the Armenian-Turkish relationship, right? I mean, it's probably going to be a very painful process for uh, many Turks. It has been a very painful process to come to terms with this past, but it's also, I think, a very, very useful process. It's a very helpful process. Uh, in the case of Lithuania, I link it to the development of democracy, to the development of this uh, open discourse. And um, I think this necessity and this very painful process of coming to terms with the past for the current generation, the young generation, I think it has been transformational. And many of those people who actually, you know, acknowledge the Holocaust and talk openly about the involvement of Lithuanians in the Holocaust, I think that has been of, of great benefit. And that has also, I, I see it as being linked to consolidation of democracy. To answer your question, international actions related to recognition of genocide, related to recognition of the Holocaust are essential. And they're essential for strengthening of democracies. And democracies, as far as we can tell, do not pursue genocides, right? So it's it's extremely important to, to try to untangle these, these complicated relationships. I think the issue of acknowledgement, Doug, is also really a very vital one. When war takes place and, you know, two sides fight it out, at the end of it, you need a peace treaty and you need, you know, some kind of uh, transitional justice process to enable those warring sides to, you know, get back to some form of civility. When you have victims of genocide, they're, they're not belligerents or combatants in the conflict. And there's a mistaken thing that, that somehow or other, if you acknowledge the victims of genocide, somehow they will come back and they will attack you back in some way. That uh, Let me give you an example. I was working in um, Rwanda in the, the late 1990s, five or six years after the genocide had taken place, and there was a plan to build a genocide memorial there. I became the project director of that and ran the program. But one of the things that was very disturbing was uh, a number of the governments and embassies and aid agencies thought that by creating a memorial, you would effectively be setting up sides so that the victims would turn around and wreak vengeance on the Hutus who were the perpetrators. And what I said to them from my knowledge of working with Holocaust survivors, I said, actually, the reverse will be true. If you acknowledge what has happened to this community of people, they will become the, the members of society who will help the healing to take place. Because in my experiences, when you acknowledge, you don't get hatred and bitterness in return. What you get is an openness to live together and engage. One of the most touching experiences I had actually was when we created the memorial center and all of the you know the presidents and the pomp and the ceremony was ended as the this new memorial opened standing outside the gates were about 2000 survivors of the genocide who just as the security all left and and the, the site opened they just came in and they just sat and like found this place in their society where they could be and be fully recognized and be fully human. And it started a process of healing in that society, which is continuing to this day. 
And it's not the bricks and mortar. It's not the monument. It's actually what it means in the society and how individuals are being recognized. The panelists here today are talking about exactly the same things in completely different geographies. And there seems to be a lot of you know, uh, similarities in terms of how these things work. And Maria, thinking about the potential, I mean, the American recognition, which may be forthcoming, but also within Turkey, I know that there are some pretty vibrant debates, really for the first time, probably in a generation where you have Turkish scholars who are encouraging the government to acknowledge genocide. I don't expect the government is going to shift its position uh, in denying the genocide, but how important are these kind of private campaigns, like, you know, as I said, within Turkey for recognition, you know, on behalf of the Armenian people and the possibility of some form of reconciliation between the Turkish and Armenian people? They're very important and interesting. I think there are a few things here. One is that it always has to start somewhere. These conversations have to start somewhere. The second thing is that for Turkey to acknowledge the Armenian genocide, like really acknowledge what it has done, and it would be to acknowledge that its entire country and its entire image and everything that it has been claiming have all been built upon the dead indigenous people and everything they had built and stolen from them. Um, culturally as well as physically and family and it's built on top of that it would have to acknowledge that the whole thing is built on lies too right the whole country and it's I mean not that all countries are built on a mythology right so it's not but it's it's a pretty serious lie that it's built upon now this may be why the country fights so hard and jails scholars uh, or exiles scholars who talk about this uh, because it's a pretty, uh, it's like that, you know, if you've got a sweater and you've got the string that's hanging out, you pull on it, it could undo the entire sweater. And I think that there is some understanding that that, that, that sweater um, probably needs to be undone because there's, there's no integrity to it. So it's a great thing. It's a place to start. Um, I'm sorry for the scholars who have been, um, you know, really oppressed and uh, punished for their courage and for their willingness to speak the truth. But that is what's, what has been happening in Turkey. It's, um, it has crushed many of the human rights campaigns. Doviel, I know part of these contestations, as I call them contestations, you have the much more eloquent trauma drama you know, term that, that you like to use, have opened up these political debates, political wounds within society. Lithuanians, I know, you know, have been coming to grips with questions of complicity, with questions of, uh, you know, of acknowledgement, but also what this means with respect to their own position as victims at the hands of the Soviets, you know, during the war. How do these dramas play out and do they have a tendency to open up the kind of partisan divisions in, in contemporary society. As I was listening to Maria, I kept thinking about the role of uh, nationalism in the construction of these traumas, right? And I think part of the reason why Turkey has such a trouble acknowledging the Armenian genocide um, is because of nationalism, because of this desire to portray 
their nation as this good <laughs> actor. And uh, there's a big uh, temptation to uh, present um, the history as being, you know, heroic. And, and I think it's true about Turkey, it's true about Lithuania, many other countries. Very often, it's very tempting to see yourself as a victim and as a fighter for the good cause. And if something doesn't fit that narrative, then it has to be suppressed or it has to be edited. There's this fascinating literature right now in political science, in international relations, ontological security literature that basically argues, look, all, all states, Turkey, Lithuania, you know, Germany, all states, the United States for that matter, they present these biographical narratives, these biographical stories to the world. And um, those stories very often deal with uh, fighting for the right causes. Um, those stories very often deal with traumas um, and where, the, where the nation kind of embraces this idea of the collective trauma and a lot of cultural works goes into it. And uh, if something doesn't fit that narrative or if something challenges that narrative, then there are these critical situations or crises, right? And it's extremely difficult to live through that crisis. It's extremely difficult because it's disorienting. Out of the sudden, you know, your narrative is being challenged. Um, and I think that this is precisely what's happening um, in Lithuania. Um, when Lithuania regains its independence, um, there was a lot of interest in the stories associated with Soviet repressions, deportations. Um, there was a lot of interest in also telling the story about a resistance uh, to the Soviet Union, anti-Soviet partisans. And then stories started coming out how some of these heroes were involved in the killings of the civilians how some of these heroes, anti-Soviet uh, fighters, were also um, engaged in the Holocaust, right? I'm not saying all of them were, but some of them were. And uh, that was extremely disorienting for this trauma drama <laughs> that was created um, during this initial uh, state building period, but it also goes back to the diaspora, the Iranian diaspora, which was um, basically talking about the so-called uh, Baltic Holocaust and so on and so forth. So I think, um, this is, this is what we are seeing in the case of um, Turkey as well. I think we're seeing uh, this international attempt to challenge and to rewrite uh, the, um, this traumatic story that Turkey has constructed for itself. And that's why it's so disorienting. That's why there's so, so much resistance. And uh, in my eyes, uh, again, this has a lot to do with uh, ontological security, with with a desire to present a biographical story that kind of fits these these uh, preconceived notions of of, of fighting and, and suffering. Now, Stephen Smith, I know a lot of the work the foundation has been doing is the, the oral history campaign to try to make sure that we have a recording you know, of these atrocities, a recording of, of these genocides. And certainly some of them, you're in a bit of a race with the march of history because so many of the survivors have now gotten to be of, of an advanced age. How important is the personal storytelling that marks a great deal of what you've been doing versus the kind of national narratives that we've been discussing thus far? Well, it's always the case that when genocide occurs, that um, in the in the politics of the regions in which it occurs, it is the meta narratives and the political narratives dominate the the response to it because um, it's usually it's usually the lightning bolt that goes through that society after it's occurred, and so it's not surprising that these become highly politicized. 
What's so important about individual uh, memories and, and testimony is that it democratizes memory. It brings it down to the level of the individual. It takes it away from the politics of memory and into the life of the individual. And we tend to forget because genocide happens at such a, uh, a massive scale that a, a, as the scale of it increases, the visibility to the individual decreases at the very time when the pain and the trauma for the individual is at its highest. And then that continues in the life of the individual for, for, you know, for the rest of their life. And as we just said a little earlier, and in their children and then their children's children and their children's children's children. Testimony and the telling of the story enables us to do several things. First of all, it prevents narrative closure. We have 52,000 testimonies of survivors of the Holocaust. You cannot get one mythological narrative out of that. It's 112,000 hours. You've got to speak 42 languages to be able to follow it. And so you've got all kinds of points of view and perspectives. So what it does, it puts the challenge on the listener, on society effectively to respond to those multiple narratives and make more complex their thinking, not, not simpler. In politics, we go to simple, it's bifurcated, black and white, it's the sort of a dualism between them and us. And we, what we do, we exacerbate the uh, them and us. Through these individual narratives, you, do, you make it more granular. And if you take the time to listen um, to them, then as an individual, you become much more sensitized to the variety. Suddenly Jews are not all victims, because some collaborated. Not all Nazis were perpetrators because some helped. Not all Poles fell into one bucket or Lithuanians into another. You start to see the real complexity of humanity at play. And so that's why I find it a very good medium to be able to not only tell the story with, but also to research more deeply what the human consequences were. And Maria, I know there's such a complicated narrative, even when you were highlighting the references to Ataturk and the Young Turks and their complicity uh, in the Armenian genocide, because sort of relating both of these stories, that the notion of the complexity and Dovile's reference to ontological security, Turkey is protecting the narratives, the myths around the founding of the modern state. I actually came across a, a post even on social media that said, why is Turkey so upset? It was the Ottomans who committed the Armenian genocide. It wasn't Turkey. Why don't they just move on? My question is, what would you have said to that response, which is actually a fairly common one when addressing this question of Turkish recognition? It's another form of denial. You know, this was this. <laughs> I mean, if you look into the entire history of the region of uh, the Turks coming in and then building the Ottoman Empire and then annihilating the Christian populations, I just want to also add that the Armenian genocide was one really of three that were going on at the time. There was also a genocide of the Greek population as well as the Assyrian population. And the Assyrians hardly get acknowledgement at all. And the Greeks are beginning to get acknowledgement, but and the Assyrians are left without a state. You know, there. I mean, I ended my piece uh, in the New Zealand Herald that you referenced earlier. You know, saying that this the recognition would offer us a salve to start to heal our scattered and battered nation, and that was because we're scattered all over the world. But the Assyrians, they're really scattered. You know, it, and they've hardly had even any countries recognize it. So, okay, so I know I went off the subject because I know you were asking about 
you know, was it the Ottoman Empire or was it Turkey? It was the young Turk government. This was the, as you said, the founding of the modern Turkish state came upon this. Um, you know, they called it the Ottoman Empire, but it was Ottoman Turkey. Even if you look at the newspapers at that time, they still called it Turkey, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And you can't forget that it continued on under Mustafa Kemal, otherwise now known as Ataturk, that this continued. Scholars are now calling it a 30-year genocide, not a genocide that started in 1915, but started back in the uh, days of Sultan Hamid in the 1890s and continued even after into the 1920s under Mustafa Kemal, otherwise known as Ataturk's reign. And I know from a sort of a global perspective, the question of, you know, who were the victims of, you know, of, of a genocide is such a, an intensely debated topic. Deville, I think of a question that I was asked, actually, it was at my dissertation defense when I was wrote a dissertation on, on war crimes prosecutions and was asked, why is it that certain communities are simply not recognized as victims? And specifically, a question was about LGBTQ victims, was about Jehovah's Witnesses. And then I would add to that the Roma community, which has only been recently recognized as a victim. Why is that? And how much does that complicate our remembrances of genocides broadly, but specifically the Second World War genocide? I think it's a it's a fantastic question. I kept thinking about when Maria was talking about you know this trauma of unrecognized uh, genocide. I was definitely thinking about a Roma community um, in Lithuania and and elsewhere in the world who um, have been um, fighting a lot for the recognition of of their suffering of um, their genocide of uh, that 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 obviously uh, took place and uh, must be recognized um, and. Um, I can just say that, um, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, um, a lot of it has to do with uh, politics. A lot of it has to do with uh, trauma drama, the cultural work, and also the ability to gain visibility. So um, when it comes to um, the case of Lithuania, um, it's a fascinating, fascinating phenomenon that's going on right now uh, when we witness the cooperation between uh, the uh, local community, the local Jewish community and the Roma community. And instead of uh, trauma competition, we see multidirectional memory, I think, which means that um, there's recognition um, by the Jewish community that Roma community also went through and uh, um, there's also discussions, common discussions, common common recognition of this of this trauma. Um, so, um, unfortunately, again, for Roma community, uh, it's such a marginalized community. Uh, it's such a discriminated community. Still, um, it's still very much like in the worst of times, linked to criminality just by the virtue of being a member of the Roma community, again, in many parts of, of European countries, there's still suspicion that, oh, that person may be, may be different from us. And, um, and it takes a lot, of, a lot of cultural work. It takes a lot of political courage. Uh, it takes a lot of international activity to make, uh, to make uh, that recognition happen. So um, it definitely has to do with political power as well. And uh, Stephen, how difficult does that make an oral history of something like 
you know, the, the Second World War generation. Because I mean, at one level, certainly the name of the foundation, the Shoah Foundation, indicates a specific genocide against one specific race. But there were so many victims. How do you tell this complex narrative mm-hmm. and try to be as inclusive as possible of all the communities that have been targeted? Yeah, the name of the, Sh- the Shoah Foundation is a little deceptive because we have 10 genocides that are represented in the archive, but it's kind of its heritage and it'll, it'll probably stay with it for, for the time being. But interestingly, when the, the collection was first made, a decision was made that we would collect testimonies from the various genocides that took place during World War II perpetrated by the Nazis because they didn't perpetrate just one genocide. There was the genocide of the Jews and there was the Paraimus, the genocide of the Roma and, you know, and other, other genocide crimes against humanity and genocide like uh, instances against a variety of groups. So. Like just like any criminal that you would identify, you know, um, through a court of law, when you've got a government that's committing state crimes, you have to name the crimes for what they are, because just because they are a violent group um, that commits crimes against uh, lots of human beings, those crimes are can be differentiated in law and should be differentiated in law. Unfortunately, post-Second World War, the Nuremberg process was brief and we moved on and we didn't actually prosecute those different genocides and crimes against humanity and war crimes um, as as thoroughly as should have happened. But when it comes to documenting it afterwards, um, the way in which we do this is at the unit level, at the, the level of the individual, because an individual may have many identities. They could indeed be, um, for example, they could be Jewish. And um, I said a little a moment ago that not all Jews were victims. In fact, all Jews were victims, but some chose to compromise in order to, to secure their survival. Very few, but some did. Um, but the, also many have multiple identities. They're, they were in mixed marriages um, or they you know, had uh, different types of heritage. The same is true of other communities too. So when you take it down to the level of the individual, you're you're not making a judgment about that individual based on a a single identity, but on their experience at that time. So if they were Roma and they were living in Poland or Hungary or Lithuania or wherever, they definitely experienced genocide because there was genocidal policy against the Roma communities all across Europe, just as there was a genocidal policy against the Jews. It was just a different set of policies executed in a different way in a different time scale but there's no question that those communities um, need need to have their own voice to tell their own story and so within the show foundations archive there's about 420 roma testimonies mainly in hungarian um, some in romani some in uh, i wish there was more in english there's only four in english Uh, most of them are in uh, central and east european languages but a, a vital archive, not only of what happened during World War II to that group of people, but actually of Romani history in Europe writ large during the 20th century, because the, the, the methodology we take is, you know, full life history. So we learn about what it was like to live uh, in a Roma, Romani uh, or Sinti family in the 1920s and 30s, way before Hitler came to power. Uh, and, and they are fascinating histories, I have to say through to, um, you know, those individuals trying to seek restitution um, in the 1990s and still not knowing where to take their paper from the Red Cross to try and find out if they can get a pension. Um, You know, so it's a kind of a a very, all all of these testimonies are more than the period of um, the 
genocide itself, but really a history of those communities as told by the people that lived in them with their multiple identities, with their whole life trajectories in multiple countries, uh, told you know, with the benefit of reflection. And it, it makes it very rich to, to, to explore. And from an education perspective, just to sort of follow this up, genocide is a crime against a community, a crime against a race, a religion, etc. And in particular, uh, frequently can be exterminationist, the idea of removing this community. What you're describing is not just a remembrance of the crimes themselves, but the history of the community itself prior to the conflict, prior to the, the atrocity, through the atrocity, and then, and then what survives. So I'm asking from that perspective, when you see your role as an educator, which I think of the Shaw Foundation as fundamentally an institution for education about genocide, how much is the emphasis or should the emphasis be on also recognizing the, the culture, recognizing the group and their experiences prior to genocide, and then also the experiences uh, after. So we're teaching students about communities they may not know about because of these, they've been so dispersed or even just uh, destroyed. So the mission of the Show Foundation is to develop empathy, understanding and respect through testimony. It's not actually to archive and document and research, you know, our collections. It's really to work with audience groups to understand much more about what the, the, the individuals and groups went through, hence the empathy uh, piece of this. Um, you know, when I, I, I decided I was going to do a PhD on some aspect of the Holocaust, I took a graduate year out and I went to Eastern Europe because I wanted to live, uh, I wanted to learn about the people and their lives before I studied their deaths. Uh, or their murders, for that matter. Um, you know, and so I learned some Yiddish, and I spent some time in Poland and um, Lithuania and Hungary and uh, the Czech Republic, and just immersed myself in the life and the culture of the people I was about to learn uh, and, and research uh, about in terms of their genocidal experience. And for me, that's still a principle from a pedagogical point of view. If you don't know who it is that you are learning about, then you will never understand the meaning of their loss. Um, or and that the meaning therefore to you from a prevention point of view, if you don't understand that the the ordinariness and the humanity of these individuals, effectively what you do in genocide studies is you re-dehumanize them through the study of their deaths. Um, and actually, I think our commemorations, our public commemorations, and our education programs should always be rehumanizing and engaging with the uh, with you know, the lives of those and who they were, because then you can get the most complexity in terms of your understanding, but also a, a better sense of why you're learning what you're learning. Well, listen to Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. We're discussing commemoration and memory of communities that have suffered genocide with Stephen Smith of the USC Shaw Foundation, Dovil Budrite of Georgia Gwinnett College, and Maria Armudian of the University of Auckland. So Maria, when thinking about um, how groups are able to reconstruct their own histories and advocate for recognition of, of genocide, um, I guess from a power perspective, when the community has been so dispersed as a result of genocide, you think, of, I mean, really the experience of the Armenian genocide where Armenians driven off of Armenian land and scattered throughout uh, uh, throughout the world. Um, can you discuss some of the challenges from such a, 
a large dispersed diaspora? Yes. I'll talk about it in a couple of different ways. One is there's a positive and a negative to, um, uh, to this. Uh, the positive is obviously that we have multiple governments that we can speak to and seek empathy from and start a process. The negative is obviously we are not a force together. Um, but through social media and through technology, we've been able to form a larger community that is connected in that way. And of course, COVID has uh, emphasized that that's something that we all have to do anyway. Um, but it's also difficult psychologically, again, in terms of not being able to be with our community, not being able to be with our families, not being able to, um, you know, feel what that is when you've when you've got that um, real connection. And people are experiencing that with COVID. Well, guess what? People like the Armenians, like the Assyrians, like other genocidal victims, have been experiencing this being ripped apart from their loved ones and from their homelands for a very long time. COVID is now bringing that to people's, uh, other people's consciousness. Like they are also experiencing what it's like to be separated physically from the people you love and from the places that you feel a connection to. Doville, I also wonder um, how much these trauma dramas that, that we've described have been forged from, I mean, in the case of, of the nation you study, Lithuania, of a relatively recent independence, but Eastern Europe filled with countries that are ironically newly independent, but have long histories, long cultures, you know, like, and trying to forge a kind of new identity for the 21st century, but driven by these historic experiences. Is it more intense in countries like, say, the Baltic states than it, it might be across other countries that just have a, you know, a, a longer history, a country like, say, Germany or Japan? I have been struggling with this question of, you know, is uh, Eastern Central Europe somehow very different, let's say, from Western Europe, right? And I think uh, I think there's something to be said about also the strategies that are coming from the actors, international actors, are very often uh, treating the region as uh, a lesser, somehow less developed <laughs> less Western, less democratic, et cetera, et cetera. Even though without any doubt, there are huge problems with democracy in countries such as Poland and Hungary, without any doubt. Um, but I think the problem of um, coming to terms with the past, for the lack of a better term, or acknowledging complicity in the Holocaust uh, is very complicated by uh, the international dimension. A lot has been written on it already, but I think acceptance into the European Union, acceptance into the transatlantic community also came with an expectation of a different historical narrative. And that complicated matters greatly because also when um, trying to embrace these local heroes with a bad past, right, with these past of the involvement in the Holocaust, I, thought, I, I think also uh, at the same time, we're seeing a backlash against what is perceived as a Western story I'm currently working on this uh, article for, for a book about memory of, of the Holocaust. And uh, one of my major arguments is that um, probably many of mnemonic conflicts that we see in Eastern Central Europe, and including Lithuania, definitely stem from this clash of uh, the 
uh, narrative of uh, hegemonic uh, Holocaust and also uh, the local trauma dramas, the local local uh, stories of suffering that that went to challenge this uh, hegemony of the Holocaust as 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 a big trauma. Um, and um, I think um, it's it's again it's a very very complicated issue, but I think it's essential that. There are local stories. I completely agree with Stephen when he was arguing that it's essential to hear um, and learn about the lives of people, not just during genocide, but also what happened before genocide. And I think probably some of the most promising um, endeavors um, to um, address the legacy of the past, I think, would be focusing on the lives of, of communities such as Roma communities, such as Jewish community, other communities that suffered um, not just during the Holocaust, but also before the Holocaust, and also uh, fight for their for their rights and against their discrimination of what's what's happening right now. So I know I, so I kind of moved away a little bit from your question, but uh, <laughs> try to relate to, to also what other speakers said as well. Uh, Stephen, you had made references to the way in which the foundation is addressing contemporary genocides. The Rohingya was one in particular. Um, how much? Is this commemoration about the past and about recognizing trauma? How much of it is about recognizing contemporary genocides and saying never again really should mean never again? Doug, I'm uh, involved in um, co-hosting a podcast called The Memory Generation. And it's just launched. The first episode is out. And actually, we start by a mass grave in Bergen-Belsen, where filmmaker Sidney Bernstein turned up part of the British forces to document what had happened there. And he saw this site and he realized that it was so unbelievable what he was seeing that it was perfectly deniable. And that if he didn't document it quickly, that um, it would not be believable very shortly. And therefore the likelihood of it being repeated would go up. And so he did something remarkable in the middle of this, this, this scene from Dante's Inferno. He said, get me a microphone. Why? Because he wanted to hear from the SS. He wanted to hear from the local Burgermeisters. He wanted to hear from the survivors right there so that the documentation of that moment would become the warning for history because he intuited that this kind of thing would happen somewhere, somewhere else. And that's the bouncing off point for the memory generation. And what he's looking at is how does the way in which we think about and talk about the past influence the way in which we understand our present. Um, So I'll just say, listen to that, keep track with it, um, and we're going to be going back and forward between the past and the present each episode every month. I think it's a wonderful way to end our conversation. We've been discussing the importance of commemoration, the importance of memory, of acknowledgement, of conversation, and understanding the complexities of genocide while maintaining a moral clarity and understanding just how evil the act is and how much we must act collectively, act united in opposition to any future genocide. I want to thank our guests, Stephen Smith, who is the uh, Viterbi Executive Director Chair of the USC Shoah Foundation in Los Angeles. He also holds the UNESCO Chair on Genocide Education. Doville Boudritag, Professor of, of Political Science at Georgia Gwinnett College. She's the co-editor of Memory and Trauma in International Politics. And Maria Armudian, Senior Lecturer in Politics.
Politics and International Relations at the University of Auckland, the author of The Danger Zone, Frontline Journalists, Their Jobs and Increasingly Perilous Future, and a new article called The Big Lie About the Armenian Genocide. And of course, once again to acknowledge my colleague, fellow co-host and founder of this show, Scholar Circle. Thank you all very much. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholar Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Inc., contributing hosts, Ankine Agassian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sud Gray, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.